Good evening, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and this evening we're very, very pleased to have guests who are going to be talking to us about traveling and vacationing with low vision. I know that for myself, after my vision became quite poor, it was something that I was really petrified. I, I didn't want to travel, or if any time I was traveling, I made certain that my wife was going to go. But I later learned from meeting people such as Richard Retta and Damian Pickering that these folks were traveling all over the place and going on vacations all by themselves, even though that their vision was reduced. So we're going to learn from them about how do they travel independently and also they may be able to share with us some great vacation tips. So first of all, I'd like to welcome Richard Retta. Welcome, Richard. Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Bill and everyone. Thanks for having me on the call. It's been a few shows since I was last on. Yes, well, many of you know because Richard was one of the former presidents of CCLVI, and we're really glad that you're still involved. And also I'd like to introduce Mr. Damian Pickering. Damian Pickering is one of the representatives from the Hims Corporation, and Damian is calling in from Oakland, or is it Alameda today? Alameda, Alameda, California, the jewel of the bay, we call it. It's an (laughs) island in San Francisco Bay. Is it really a jewel? Um, Yeah, I think it's aptly named. I mean, those of us who who live here really, really love it. It's a... because it's an island, you don't go through Alameda to get anywhere, so it kind of has a, a small-town feel to it, even though it's just right near Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco. I mean, I can get to the Oakland Airport, to BART, to the Amtrak, and, of course, we have Uber nowadays, so with that, you you know, the sky's the limit. You can pretty much get anywhere. Well, with all of that that uh, Damien had just shared, you could tell it's very helpful to be at a, uh, a location where you have access to many different forms of transportation, and it seems like you're really set in a very, very nice setting that way. Just for some of you who may not have met Damien, Damien is actually totally blind, and Richard is uh, legally blind, but he does have some vision. So uh, the first thing I want to ask you folks are basically – what do you think is the most important thing that you have learned in terms of trying to travel independently? Let's go ahead and start with you, Richard. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Bill. I, you know, that's a very good question. And I think is having your self-confidence about you, knowing where you're going, where you want to travel, and, and knowing and when you're out there in public, knowing like you know where you're supposed to be so you don't look like you're vulnerable or you can be a, um, a target for anyone. And I, I, for the past eight years, have continued to travel with a guide dog. And so that has made my travel a lot easier. And I had my own moments where I was wearing bifocals when I switched to a white cane and then went to my guide dog. And I accepting those uh, tools in my life have, have made me a more graceful traveler with low vision. And um, even though I, I like my autonomy, knowing when to reach out to folks and asking for assistance, so knowing when to ask for help and knowing when you can do things on your own. And I think I've come a long way in the last 10 years, uh, having those tools and those 
um, things in my travel toolkit, toolkit, if it were. Yes, I, I would really agree. I think that when you are prepared and you know where you want to go, but I think if you also know that there's people around you, and I have found people to be very, very willing to help. Now, Damien, how about for yourself? I know that you do travel with your guide dog, and having a guide dog, do you ever feel that that has been beneficial or has it been detrimental because some people are hesitant to try to offer you help because they think that the guide dog knows everything? <laughs> That's a funny thought. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't say... I would, I would never put it that it's detrimental to, to have a guide dog um, because for every one person who might be put off or, or a little phobic of the dog, there's nine or ten people that really are extra interested in engaging because of that. And a lot of times, you know, a, a dog can be a real icebreaker because, um you know, people, a lot of people want to approach you and start to ask some questions about the dog and things like that. And that can be a real opportunity to say, oh, well, by the way, um, you know, verify, uh, you know, am I at such and such a, a store or let people know what you're looking for. And so that, that can be helpful. Um, I, I do have a, a guide dog. Um, he's my second dog. Um, most of my adult life, um, I have not had dogs, though. I've, I've traveled with a cane, and, and I still make sure to always have a folding cane um, or a telescoping cane in my in my bag with me when I'm traveling just because you, you never can be 100% sure, I mean, if something might happen to the dog. It's just part of uh, that, that Boy Scout motto of uh, always be prepared, I mean, because your dog could get sick. There are certain situations where you may just want to heal the dog or have the dog on leash, and, and it's helpful to have your cane with you to explore, um, you know, an environment or, or certain landmarks because, of course, travel with a cane versus a dog is very different. A, a cane, you're really looking for tactile landmarks and like a, a curb edge or, you know, a hedge line or, a you know, trailing a, a wall maybe or, you know, you're kind of tapping those lamp posts as you go by with a dog. You know, the dog is avoiding all those obstacles and so you have more of what they call a kinesthetic sense of, how long are you traveling at such and such a you know a distance? Does the ground slope up or down? I mean, so it's just kind of a different set of clues. So I, I wouldn't say one is better or worse than the other, but I do echo what Richard said about I do find, especially when you're in an unfamiliar area, you know, having a, a sense of confidence and looking like you have purpose or you you kind of have an idea where you're going or that you belong there and that can be an advantage to having a dog because you're you don't have to worry about running into some unfamiliar obstacle or something like that so that that can give you a little little more confidence in in traveling but there are you know you you always have to have extra food and find a place to relieve your dog and I mean if you're in an unfamiliar hotel and 
you know, you don't know. I mean, some some hotels maybe in the middle of a city. There's just you're in a cement jungle, and it's really difficult to find a a good place. And then, of course, you need to know where the trash cans are and all things like that. So there are there are trade-offs to whatever method uh, you, you choose. I find. Yes. You know, Richard, I, I recall, I believe the first time that I met you, it was at the convention in Arizona, and I don't believe that you had a guide dog with you at that particular point in time. Yeah, what was it that convinced you to get a guide dog? Like for myself, I don't have a guide dog yet, but I'm thinking about it. What convinced you to get a guide dog? You know, and, and I'll go back to I, I have a, a personal feeling, and this is just me. I don't put it on anyone else on, on guide dogs and conventions. I, I tend to not take my guide dogs to conventions, and I'll, and I'll leave that out there as a teaser, and I'll, and I'll go back to that. But um, I, I've been legally blind all my life, and about four years ago I lost all my vision and was very fortunate to get a lot of it back to what I had it prior to that. So um, having had several eye surgeries, cornea transplants, glaucoma spikes, and uh, retina reattachments, you name it, I've I've gradually have lost vision, depth perception, and a lot of glare issues, a lot of... um, just a lot of things. I've lost a lot of my vision, and I still have a lot of it, but I... I found that I'm a tall guy, I'm a decent cane user, and I used to wear bifocals, and as fast as I was with a white cane, I I just felt that I was ready for a guide dog. I, I, I'd been influenced by a lot of good people in my life who were good role models to me, who were good, really good, very professional guide dog users, knew their boundaries, knew how to keep their dog you know, with them and, and, and work them well. And I, um, following that motto, I, I decided to get a dog in uh, late 2006. I, I researched, and in about 2008, I was ready, so I applied. And for me, it was a huge turning point. I remember up until that point, I was wearing my bifocals, even though I knew they weren't very helpful. And the day I got my dog, I stopped wearing them. And it really helped me learn who I was and, and by seeking out assistance when I went to the stores and asking for more directions and not being you know, being more humbled with the whole experience. And, and for me, it's, it's great because um, with a guide dog, I, I feel more self I feel more self confident. I travel more. I, I go to more places. I feel less vulnerable when I'm out traveling at night and I'm going from place to place. And having been all over the United States with and without my dog, I, I felt just more more impressed and more safe with my dog and, and less uh, less vulnerable. Wow, that's really, really good. That's really interesting. And why is it, Richard, that you don't take your dog uh, to any of these types of uh, conferences or conventions? And, and um, what, what I will say on the outset is I have taken my dog, both of my dogs, I'm on my second dog, to conventions, but usually when I have the opportunity not to, I won't. I remember taking my first dog, having only had him two weeks, to the uh, um, ACB convention in, in Louisville in 2008. And, and I asked at school, I said, is this a good thing for me to take my dog only two weeks out? We're still you know, learning each other's habits and, and, and such and half the staff said, no, you shouldn't. The other half said, well, you know, you've got to start sometime. So what I decided was I took him to convention, and I worked him half the day, and I left him in the hotel room the other half of the day. 
Now, having been to conventions, several conventions, state, national conventions since, I, I've, I've, I've seen that, in my opinion, dogs, and Damien might have a different perspective, and I'd love to hear it. I see dogs get very stressed when you're around so many other dog users and cane users, and they're in these you know, narrow hallways and elevators and escalators. And for me, um, even though I know it's a good thing, I just didn't want to have to vie for you know, a, a place to get my dog to do his business when the, there's you know, 200 other guide dog users out there and just so much going on. So I, I've opted to always have someone watch my dog when possible. In fact, when I go to ACB in two weeks from Minneapolis, I have a dog sitter um, lined up so I can just go take my cane, and that gives me the opportunity to practice my cane skills and give my dog a vacation, which he so well deserves for everything he puts up with every, everything else we do throughout the year. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, I, I have seen so many dogs get stepped on at these types of conferences, so I, yeah. I, I felt bad for them. You know, they're laying under a chair and somebody steps on them. Damien, what's your feeling about taking the dogs to these types of very crowded areas or conferences where there's other guide dogs. Do you have any thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think it through every time, and I've I've done both. I've opted to to leave my dog when um, when I had the opportunity, and and I mean, it's also part of the job. And when I get a dog and I'm going through the interview process, I mean, that's one of the things that I specify about my lifestyle and, and that I want, a, you know, some dogs I think are, are better, have a better temperament um, to be able to deal with that. I mean, I think it is one of the more stressful um, environments and situations to, to put a dog through. Um, so, I, I, you know, and that's just something dog users, dog handlers learn. Um, I think in my travels, the, the absolute kind of, I don't want to say worst, but most challenging and probably stressful situation for my dog is in a casino. I mean, the times that we've had uh, um, conferences in Las Vegas or Reno, um, oh, yeah. you know, there are these, you know, these open, you know, spaces where there isn't a clear obvious path of travel there's just lights and noise and chaos and people and and i and i've talked with sighted people where they say you know the environments are kind of designed to be a little unusual and i mean they the casinos kind of don't want people to to so easily you know get out they want to keep <laughs> you in there and you know going to the machines and you know things like that so those are situations where um you know, I, I, I just always think about, you know, what am I asking my dog to do? Um, and yes. sometimes you, you can't, you know, you, you don't have a choice. But, I mean, there are certain times, like, I mean, kind of on the other the other side of it, um, you know, learning, when I was learning to use a dog the first time, um, you know, they always say learn, you know, trust your dog and learn to work with a dog. I mean, I would think about going into... Uh, a store, and a lot of times they may have displays and things like that in an aisle, or things may be a little more crowded. And in the beginning, I was, you know, just more feeling awkward about having my dog in that situation and not being 100% sure, you know, what is he going to do? How is he going to handle that? And I preferred to go sighted guide with someone and, you know, maybe be healing the dog. And so then, 
you know, I'm I'm next to somebody holding them, and then I've got the dog on the other side, and then we're sort of like two and a half people wide, and it, it's hard to get around. And one day I just, um, you know, decided I was going to work the dog through that situation, and it was just so much smoother that, you know, the, the dog just intuits and knows, and you're, you're you know, a much narrower, you know, load, and he just kind of worked his way around the the little exhibits, and it was just so smooth. It was like, wow. And then, um, like, being outdoors and hiking, I mean, that going with a person, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be with an O&M instructor or somebody who's just very skilled at describing um, something, that's great. But most people kind of can't find the words, and they're not sure about, like, what's the best way? And, well, there's a rock, and, you know, be careful, and there's this, you know, stump or what have you. And a dog just finds kind of the path of least resistance. And, I mean, it was so liberating to just kind of be out and go on a hike with people and I could actually be the one you know leading the way out in front and I mean it was a really good experience so I mean it's it's there's a full kind of range of things and I you know just real quick um I didn't have a dog growing up and it was a situation where I moved from a city more into the suburbs and all of a sudden, it was just a very different environment where I'd been used to being very independent and getting around on my own. And suddenly, I lived in an area where there weren't sidewalks everywhere and things were more designed for cars. And it was just a much more challenging environment. I had to walk a mile to get to the BART station to take the train into work in San Francisco and and that was, you know, learning that route was very challenging. And there was a point where I had to walk through a, a lumber yard, and it was just really <laughs> stressful. And it was at that point that I said, you know, this is the time. I've always wanted to see what the difference is and what it's like to have a dog. So it just made sense. That was the catalyst that, that you know, pushed me over the edge. And, and it was much easier in that environment to, you know, to travel with the dog, so well, it really uh, sounds as though the guide dogs could be very helpful for anyone who is low vision, because again, you can keep the guide dog in your room, mm-hmm. but you could also take the guide dog with you in these other types of situations. And when you're traveling, you really don't know what areas you might be encountering, so that is something that's really good. Now, Richard. Um, I know that you have traveled all over the United States and things, and can you tell our listeners what are the rules about taking a guide dog, whether it's going to be on the airplane or a taxi cab or a bus? For example, if you have a big golden retriever or Labrador, where is that dog going to stay? Do they make that dog stay in a different part of the airplane, or does the dog stay right underneath your legs there? Well, before I answer that, I want to go back to um, two things just to complement what Damien said. I I agree. When you go through the process of of interviewing for a dog, they do ask you what your lifestyle is. And and being someone who has traveled 
up and down the state for the past four years and virtually probably similar to the alien but I've lived out of a suitcase. I asked for a dog. I, I said, I need someone that's going to be on the road with me a lot. I won't be home. I won't have a consistent schedule. And often the schools do their best to pair you up with a dog that has those, you know, those thresholds, those behaviors that are those, hey, I'm okay with not being, you know, a nine-to-five dog, having different schedules. So that that was very nice. And then the other thing I, I will I will caution for persons with low vision, because I've seen this with friends, and, and I urge friends who have some usable vision to take advantage of this when they go to their schools or ask for this, is to, to train with their guide um, in class under sleep shade, under, under um, you know, without any sight because that forces you, the person with low vision, not to use your vision or to heal your dog because sometimes you're going to second-guess what the dog's trying to do and you can untrain their their behaviors and that could, that could really hurt in the long run if you're trying to get them around an obstacle that they know they're going to get around and, and then at night when your vision changes. So I would really make that a high priority when folks go to training to make sure they, they ask to be under sleep shade. And I did that and uh, it helped. It helped a lot for part of the training. Um, as far as the question with, you know, having the dog, the dog goes pretty much everywhere you go. I, I think with a few exceptions, such as like a, you know, hospital ICU unit, the dog will travel up in the plane with me. I, I fly on Southwest Airlines, so I I personally have my dog up on Bulkhead with me, and it works fine. He is a big dog. He's 80 pounds of black Labrador, so he often, uh, Damien might have uh, other experiences too, has, has bumped me up from coach to business class and once to first class, and I had no problem with that. I had no problem whatsoever. Yeah, um, I had that happen too, and and then, you know, I've tried to, you know, when they've said something about the dog, and I said, yeah, you know, I think he'd be really comfortable in first class. But uh, it, it it never works when you try to, to make it work. It's just every now and then somebody just is a dog lover or, they, you know, there's an opportunity. And I think it actually has happened to me twice in, in 12 years, but it was a great experience. Me too. Yeah, I'd say no more than twice. But you know, dogs are allowed in taxis. Uh, they're if you follow the uh, the thing with the disability rights folks and the NFB, they're you know have a lot of folks who have had discrimination with guide dogs with Uber and Lyft. So there's there's that going on right now. But dogs are allowed in in those private vehicles. Um, and everywhere you go, they go for the most part. Great. Now, when you are actually making your plans for your vacation, and let's say that you're going to be uh, making a reservation for an air, airfare ticket, airline ticket, uh, how do you go about making those reservations, Richard? Um, I tend to fly on Southwest where it's open seating. So with Southwest, I just make sure I, I priority board so I can get that bulkhead. Um, I know with other airlines where there are assigned seats, you can call them and let them know, hey, I do have a service animal. I'd like to make sure I get bulkhead and if, if the dog's big. Otherwise, uh, some folks just deal with it when they get to the airport. I'd love to hear what Damien does because he fly, probably flies a lot more than I do these days. Yeah, I'm I'm mostly Southwest as well, and um, you know when you get to pre-board on Southwest, uh, you don't have to deal with that open seating as much. So I mean, a lot of people will complain about that, um, but you know I, I 
just think they run a pretty tight ship and do a great job. Um, I, you know, when, when I'm not sure if this is kind of what you were angling at, Dr. Bill, but um, there is a, a Southwest app that um, I've downloaded on my iPhone, and I have my Rapid Rewards number and, and all of that programmed um, right in there. And I find it, it's fairly fairly accessible. Um, I am able to go in and, and look up flights and actually book flights with the, the app on, on my iPhone. It yeah. takes a little while. Um, so it may be something if I just, you know, have a little bit of time and, and you know, um, you know I, I can do that. Um, sometimes it is just faster and easier to, to call on the phone and, and do it with a person. But, but like I say, I mean, I, I like to explore and work with the technology, and, and it, is, um, it is accessible. That's great. One other thing I, I will add is... Um, when I board the plane, typically Southwest, I tend to ask the flight attendant, hey, is this flight going to be full? And if it's not, then I try to block out a middle seat so there's more leg room for my dog and myself. And they're usually accommodating. If it's a full flight, then, you know, we work with it. But I, I, I tend to ask those kinds of questions when we're boarding so I kind of can expect what's my flight going to be like. Yeah, I do yeah. the same. Now, when you're going to make an appointment, let's say that you were to call Southwest or United or whatever airline, do they charge you a fee if you make your reservations by the telephone, or do they knock off that fee if you tell them that you're blind? Southwest doesn't do that. I have no other airlines have, but I don't think they can legally anymore. With There's new rules out there, and I'm not up to date with the right specific regulation, but I, I've heard in the last year or two that that's supposed to be dealt, like if you're a person with a disability requesting accommodations or making a, a flight that normally would cost 25 or $30 more by phone, I, they're supposed to waive that. And I don't know what the process is. I, I tend to book online, so that that's what I do. Yeah, I, I think that there used to be, I mean, Southwest used to say something about for the lowest fares go online. And in those days when I, this was before I had the app um, and, and um, before the, the, the online was accessible, I would call and specify that I'm blind and I'm not able to use the website and they would waive the, the fee at that time. And I don't think that there's a difference now with Southwest, but there could be with others. And I, I found that I've, if I've ever mentioned it and, and asked for that, I've always been given that accommodation. Um, you know, nobody's ever said, you know, oh, you, you have to, you know, to pay this. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, oh, if, that's if really the, great to know yeah, that they the would waive that particular fee if you call and make that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I found really very helpful, the first time that I went to fly, I decided to fly out of a local airport, Burbank, because it's just smaller and such. And uh, when when my wife let me off right in front of the sky cap, he saw my cane and he said, hold on here a minute, sir, I'm going to get you an escort. And there was an escort who took me all the way up to the gate and took my boarding pass and gave it to the woman. And it, it just made it so easy. And when I landed at my destination, they had an escort who was waiting and took me to get my luggage and took me to the transportation. And I just realized 
my gosh, the biggest fear of walking through that airport where you don't know where you're going, that's not a problem with these escorts. How, how much do you folks usually tip these escorts when they assist you like that? Damien? So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Damien. Well, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, usually, I mean, I, I want to say kind of the the gold standard or, or, you know, just the typical thing would be like five bucks. I mean, I try to carry a bunch of fives and a bunch of ones, yeah. um, you know, at least three. I mean, I think, you know, if somebody is like uh-huh. terrible, you know, then maybe less than that. But, you know, if somebody's kind of, and it also depends, like, you know, did we go like through the Starbucks line and get coffee or, you know, if, they, <laughs> yes, if we got, you know, if we got luggage and, you know, and then they helped me to, you know, yeah. to the Uber spot or the taxi stand. I mean, I, I've, you know, one time, um, you know, I needed, I was a, a, you know, multi-flight, you know, kind of full day of travel. And the person, you know, we actually went out through security where I was changing planes and found the dog relief area and then came back in. And I think, you know, maybe I gave him, you know, 10 that day because it was, you know, there was sort okay. of a, a extra circumstances. But okay. I, I mean, I think three to yeah. five usually. What, what do you think, Richard? I, I agree. Damien had every scenario that I, I, I encountered. If I go... Often in Phoenix, I have to, you know, transfer flights. I have the longest layovers there, so I end up going out of security or in Vegas, and those airports are big. And so I usually give them five to seven bucks if, if that's the case. Or like Damien, if I'm going through a Starbucks or, or, or need other, can you show me to the door of the bathroom and wait till I come out? And, you know, sometimes uh, you just need those things. And if they're cool, I'm going to give them a tip with no, no problem. But if they start asking for a tip or expecting a tip, I get a little testy with them. I just don't like the fact that they're going to expect a tip or or tell me what to pay them. Or if they come, you know, with a wheelchair and and say, insist that I must sit whether I'm with or without my dog, then you have to stop and do a little education or, you know, just kind of – it can not ruin your day, but just kind of set you back a little bit. So sometimes, you know, with certain airports, you have to do a little education. Yeah, now what about when you're scheduling a, a hotel or a motel type of reservation? Uh, as a person with low vision and if you do have a guide dog, are there any specific things that you request, you know, as far as for the room that makes it more convenient for you? I I tend not to. Um, I don't ask for the disability room. I don't ask for. I tend not to ask for an elevator or a door, or a room near an elevator. If I'm going to a large convention, and I, I sometimes I say, can I have a lower room floor so I can, you know, take the stairs or find alternate routes, and you're not stuck on the elevator with like, you know, 70 other people trying to get down at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> but generally, I, I just I take what they give me, and and it works. Yeah. Yeah, I I often will ask for, I mean, if there's rooms on the ground floor, because then there could be an option that there might be a door that opens to the outside, and, you know, that could make it real convenient to be able to take your your dog out, Um, you know, or sometimes... um, you know, having a like a, a room that's kind of near a back door to the hotel again, where there might be a, a convenient area. I mean, that's sort of the the ideal is if you have a you know a, a hotel room with a door, maybe a slider, and you can just walk out and there's you know dirt or grass out there. I mean, that is the best. 
or being yeah. near a you know a Thank side you. entrance or something. But you know, it's not always available, and you know, I I will sometimes just take what they give me as well. Um, I echo what you say, Richard. I I don't like those um, you know the so-called accessible rooms. I just find they're they're as a blind person, they're oftentimes sort of harder to to figure out. Like things just aren't in a in a standard place, or the you know the the bathrooms just set up in an odd way um, for the wheelchair users. I mean, it's really for a person who uses a wheelchair primarily. Yeah. Now, one of the things I, I'd recommend to all the listeners out there, I, I strongly recommend try to not get a room near the elevator, uh, because even though these elevators are new and they're well maintained. You could hear those elevators going up and down if you're right next to the elevator. So if you could be a bit further, or like Richard and Damien stated, you know, maybe on the first floor and uh, just a straight line path, that makes things really easy. Now, what about in terms of uh, when you are, you've landed, or maybe that you the bus has stopped and you're at your destination, now you want to take a Uber or a taxi, uh, Richard, have you found there to be any difficulties? Do you have difficulties using Uber or Lyft with your cell phone? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up really quick, and, and you said when you landed. I'm going to start there. So sometimes, and, and that this might just be me, and, and it's a personality flaw, I, I, I can be very impatient sometimes. I don't know about you, Damien, but when I land and there's no escorts there waiting for me, and I've been on a, plate, a plane all day, the last thing I want to do is wait. 20 minutes for an escort, and sometimes that has happened. So I, wow. I tend to find people on the plane going, "Hey, are you going to baggage claim? Can we follow you?" And then, you know, people are more than happy to help me find luggage if I have luggage, or just get to the exit. And then once I've gotten through that exit, uh, with or without the escort, um, the, the airports I've been to, LAX, Sacramento, elsewhere, I've been able to get my ground transportation Uber pretty easily. I, I, some of the airports do. Um, have a system that benefits the taxis, such as LAX, you land at baggage claim, the taxis are there, but if you want Uber, you have to go up to to uh, departures to get your Uber, which is counterintuitive. But So you just kind of have to know your arrival city and what the, the, the rules around, you know, airport shuttles or Uber or taxis and, and so on and so forth. Have you had any difficulties with using the application for Lyft where you know how they want you to pinpoint where you are at that location? Yeah, I, I do have trouble with the, with the pinpoint, but I try to put the, ad, the specific address and location, and then I, te- I personally text the driver saying, hey, I'm the blind guy with the white cane, or I'm the blind guy with the guide dog, so uh, I give them the chance to let them know, hey, this is who you're looking for. Oh, yeah, great. ditto. The, the, the same. Hey, now, Damien, how do you find your luggage? I know that you are totally blind. How do you find your luggage when it's coming off of that carrier? Uh, Do you usually wait and have that escort, or if another person guides you, do you help them to identify your luggage? So both of those things. Um, However, there's what I – this is going to be my next purchase on Amazon. Um, I've got some blind friends that are – finding great success with something called tiles that's a, like a, a little, you know, the little literally like a little tile sort of a, a product that's app-enabled. So you attach this thing to, say, your luggage or whatever it is, 
and then you have a, an app on your on your phone, and you can activate it. And when the the tile is within you know a, a certain proximity, oh. it will it will give like a, a little alarm. And so, friends oh, of mine cool. are actually like you know identifying their own luggage and being able to to grab that. So this just may be, you know, something where when we're talking next year, I'll be able to give you a full breakdown of this, but I, I just see a lot of um, benefits to this. Like, for example, occasionally you get into a hotel where they don't have Braille or raised lettering on the doors, and I've yes. had to do kinds of different things like take a, one of my Braille business cards and slip it in the door and then start kind of feeling for that when I get back. But again, if, if I had one of these tiles when I get into the the hallway and I think I'm near, I could just so activate the you know the you know tile number one or number two or whatever it is on the on my phone, and then it'll give the little alarm, and that will you know lead me right there. So I'm I'm really uh, excited to uh, explore this new technology. Do you know approximately what's the cost and? Who's the manufacturer of some of our listeners are going to be searching to buy it? You know, I don't know the manufacturer. Um, I mean, what my friend told me is you can just do like a Google search or literally go on Amazon and just, you know, type in tiles. Uh um, And, you know, it it comes up. So, um, you know, sorry, I I don't have, you know, the real detail because I just learned about this myself in the last couple of weeks. But, okay, uh, well, we'll have to know. Google search it and see how much it is, but that sounds like uh, something that we could have a lot of different uses for. Now, yeah, I now, think it Richard, might be like, I, like 99 bucks for a 10-pack or something, you know, okay, maybe around $10 a tile. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to find out more because I think it's promising. Yeah, that's yeah, really that's reasonable. Cool. You know, Richard, you've traveled to many different places, and what are some of your favorite vacation locations, you know, vacation destinations that you just really, really enjoyed and you thought that things were really also uh, well adapted for people who were blind or low vision? Well, now that I'm in my 40s, I, I like more of like the Hawaiian vacations, the beaches, the resorts, the more laid back, or I, I love to swim, I love water, and I just love to chill out and relax with a good book and a good drink and just uh, <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, um, yes. this past February, I spent three weeks in Hawaii. I did hiking, did some tandem bicycling, spent some time on the beach, went with some friends. It was fantastic. Um, there are organizations out there that you can um, sign up with if you're uh, going with another person or with a family member or by yourself that set up trips for you, such as um, Travelize in the U.K. that uh, take blind people and pair you up with college students, and you can be basically your visual interpreter for the week. And it's really, really cool. Wilderness Inquiry out of Minneapolis does all, a lot of campouts and canoeing trips, and it's very accessible. It's not catered to disabled people, but they're very inclusive. And they, uh, if you say you're blind, they totally get it, and they accommodate you. And um, I've done, I've been to Costa Rica with them. I've been on the Boundary Waters canoeing with them. Um, just wow. some really neat organizations. If you want someone to kind of you know, be your travel planner and, and coordinator for you, you pay one price and you show up and then you participate. So it depends on how you want to do vacation and travel. Um, I hope to go to Spain. That's on my bucket list. Um, 
I'm going to ACB convention in two weeks, and I'm going to go early because some of my Hawaii friends are going to be there, and we're going to go hiking around the Great Lakes for a day or two before I go there. So just, you know, finding what your niche is and what you like to do. The last thing I will say is um, I love Disneyland, and in recent years, Disneyland has been very accommodating. They have audio description um, products that tell you where you're at and what ride attractions you're at, and you, you pick them up at guest services at all the Disney parks. So there's accessibility there as well, which is kind of neat. Yes, yes, they've been very, very accommodating. You know, just just a, a question, though. Which island did you go to in Hawaii, and which, if you've been to multiple, which island do you enjoy the most in Hawaii? Cause um, I think it's I've a great I've been to Hawaii vacation. three times. Um, I like the big island of Hawaii. Hilo um, is really neat. There's a lot of culture there, a lot of locals. It hasn't been too exploited with tourism, uh, but it does exist, but it's nice. Um, I've been yes. to... Oahu, and then I went to Maui uh, this past February and spent a good deal of time in Maui, and that's like being in Santa Cruz. It's it's smaller, 112,000 people on the island. It's bigger than Oahu. It's more just it's more like eco travel, and there is even Uber on the island. A lot of camping, a lot of water sports, and it's just it's not as crowded, so it's nice. Yeah, I'd have to share that same opinion though about the Big Island. I really enjoyed the Big Island and. Going to Hilo and then eating at Dan's Grill. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. You, you really get to uh, meet the the people who live there, and and they are just very accommodating. What about you, Damien? I know that you you've been throughout the world, and uh, what are some of your most enjoyable vacation trips that you've been on? Well, it's funny, you know, you brought up Hawaii because I just went to Hawaii for my first time a family vacation and went there for New Year's. We went. We were on the north shore of Oahu and had a, one oh. of these, um, you know, v, VRBO, you know, got a house right on the beach. And, I mean, I was, you know, just in shorts for the whole week and was out <laughs> there in the water with a boogie board and, you know, all of that and just, just loved it. I mean, Hawaii is everything it's cracked up to be and I would love to go back and, I, w- I want to do the Big Island after hearing hearing the two of you. Um, did you take your dog, Damien? Because I, I didn't. No, I, didn't want to have- I, I did not. You know, because I, I didn't. You know, do the he's. You know, it's kind of a a long lead time. You know, to go through yeah. all the the paperwork and the hoops. And my dog is eleven now, and and you know, I just I I, I don't know. I don't think it was. Uh, it was one of those sure. situations where the long flight over there, and I figured we were just going to be right on the beach. It would be kind of easier for for him and for me to to not be together for that one. Um, but uh, you know, you mentioned Disney, and one of the things that I loved about about Disney was um, the, the accommodation. I mean, they have dog relief areas that they yeah. they maintain beautifully. Um, when you when you go on a ride, they they actually will have a Disney person come and you know take care of your dog while you go on the ride. So I was able to ride with my family, you know, because in, in previous places like at Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk or something like, somebody would always have to stay with the dog, and so like all of our group could never go mm-hmm. on the rides at the same time. And so I thought, you know, they've really thought things through um and just universal studios is the same way with with that concept with dogs too yeah i mean i think just you know researching asking what services are available i mean anytime you go to i mean 
a sporting event, a, a concert, a, a talk. I mean, nowadays, I mean, just check in with accessibility services and, you know, say I'm blind, you know, what, you know, do you have any, any special things? And it may or may not be something that you'd want to take advantage of. But a lot of times, I mean, they will have audio description, you know, at a movie or, you know, a live theater event that can really enhance the experience um, that, you know, you wouldn't even know about if you didn't ask. And so a lot of times it's just, you know, find out what, you know, what's available wherever yeah, you I, happen to I, be. I would, I would add to that that if you, if you do know other people with low vision or visually impaired or blind and, and the place you're traveling to, touch, touch base with them. If they're an ACB or NFB affiliate, say, hey, I'm going to go to this city. Do you have any travel tips or any things I should go that's going to make my experience more tangible? That's always been my success with traveling to cities. Yes. Let me interject here. You know, one of the things that I learned from traveling, too, is the fact that, uh, for one thing, I took my family just here locally here in Hollywood. Uh, we went to Universal. And when I went to pay, they said, you know, are you legally blind? And I said, yes, I am, you know, because she said, I noticed your cane. She said, okay, you get in for free. There's no admission fee for you. Another really surprising event was is that I bought tickets to go to the Laker game. And it, it was something where uh, I didn't really buy great tickets. And when we went in and I gave the us the tickets, he says, oh, you know what? Uh, I would like to sit you down in our special seating for people with low vision. And I said, well, I want to sit with my, my family here. And they said, yeah, all of you. And we got to sit very, very low to the court with this. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And I've had other patients state that when they went to New York to go see Broadway plays, they were given front row seating because uh, they're, they're cane. So you can often ask about that, and you might get even a better a better seat, and you could pay for the lowest admission seating and, and do really great with that. You know, I want to open up to questions in just a moment, but I also want to ask a question to either of you. What has been your experience traveling in different countries when you have a guide dog or just being blind with a cane? I'll start with you, Richard. Have you traveled to another country? I, I, I have been overseas. I was in um, Taipei, Taiwan uh, back in oh. 2010. I haven't traveled with my dog overseas, but uh, being a blind person in Taipei City, boy, I tell you, you, you better... Uh, take the uh, escort they give you because they, they allow those little motorbikes on the sidewalks out there, and they don't care if you're blind or not. You, they have the right of way. So, They're riding uh, on I'll the take sidewalk? assistance on they the sidewalk. On the sidewalk? Oh At least God. in Taipei proper, near the university. I don't know about the entire countryside, but in, in some of the, and that was a very congested city. It was a great experience, but I... Uh, they had interpreters and guides for us, and we, we definitely took advantage of them. I've, I've been to Ireland. I've been to Scotland, and uh, it was fun. I, I've been to more, other than Taiwan, I've been to more English-speaking countries, and for me it's just been a great experience. Uh, I went with Travelize to um, Italy in 2010 and had assistance, and that was really, really cool. So um, for me, I've had good experiences, interpreters when need be and guides when need be. Hey, Richard, real quickly, you mentioned uh, something called Travel Eyes. Is that an or organization or a travel agency for the blind? 
It's an organization in, uh, they're up in London, um, I forget exactly where they're at, but uh, Amar Latif is a blind guy who started this travel organization mm-hmm. about 12 years, 11 years ago, and he, he hosts trips for blind travelers all over the world, and he... Um, he bring he he will find college students and and give them like half the half the fare that he charges us to entice them to come and travel and then to be our guides for the week, and um, it, it's it's a very successful program. I have a, a friend in L.A. who I turned on to that, and he travels with them all the time. He's been to Iceland, he's been to Australia with them, and I just went with them to Italy, and it was it was a blast. God, that's great. Um, Travel Eyes, E-Y-E, T-R-A-V-E-L-E-Y-E-S dot C-O dot U-K. And it's a pretty impressive website. Ah, that's great. Now, how about you, Damien, before we open up the questions? Did you run into any countries that it was really difficult to vacation because of your blindness? I wouldn't say that it was necessarily difficult, but I felt like once I got out of the English-speaking countries like Spain and and Italy, I mean, I had a great time, but it it felt like I was more of a novelty, like, um, you know, maybe they're, you know, the, the general population are not used to seeing blind people out and about traveling independently as much as here, um, so, I mean, that that was just my general impression. I mean, it, it seemed like I had to kind of reach out and, and be the kind of the the missionary of blindness a little more often there than than here. Um, okay. But, Let's open it up yeah. to questions, and Damien, if that's okay. We're running sure. close towards the end of our program, but this is fantastic information you guys have. And if you have a question, would you unmute your phone by pressing star six? And uh, I actually have a question for you, Richard. Uh, If I were to travel to another country, whether it is China, Japan, or Europe, do you recommend that I actually convert my United States dollars to that foreign currency in that country, or should I do it here in the United States? I know that they say it's not best to do it at the airport because they tend to charge you more, but... um um, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. Damien, do you have a better answer than me? Because I've traveled so infrequently overseas that I, I, I think I've done it at a bank, uh, at a bank either before I go or once I arrive, but not at the airport because the airport tends to charge you more. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, Damien? I mean, I've done it, I've done it um, you know, more at a bank before I go just because, you know, I speak the language here and I know where the bank is, and that's just one more thing to to figure out and it's you know I always find you know I want to have at least a little bit of of money in my pocket ready to go as soon as I you know get out there into that yeah. new environment. Oh, that's that's a good I, I will say one final thing is for anyone this is just travel advice that's like a life hack kind of thing. Let your credit card company know you're traveling overseas so they don't think it's some kind of a fraud so that you can, you know, get your hotel room when you arrive. <laughs> oh, oh, so you call your credit card company and you notify Oh, yeah, because if they be... say, hey, why is this charge from Barcelona? You you should be in, in, in Whittier, California. I'm like, no, I'm in Barcelona. <laughs> so I let them uh-huh. know my travel itinerary, and then they're, they, they, they flag it so that they it will be less likely fraud. Ah, that's a great, great suggestion. And also, another thing that I, I know that people have said they always do is they photocopy their passport. 
make a photocopy of it just in case you lose it, you know. Uh, does yeah. anybody have any questions out there for uh, Damian Pickering or Richard Retta? Are there any questions? Uh, in terms of my experiences, see if um, Richard and Damian have similar experiences, I agree. When I, I always book my my, my uh, flights by phone, but I'm always sure to mention right away, you know, when I'm, I'm blind, please put down, you know, and, and mark that on that I'll need an escort and so forth. And so that's very valuable. And then, of course, as was said, I always make sure they remove that $25 extra charge for the booking over the telephone. And then um, in terms of traveling itself, I found that bringing all my luggage on my back <laughs> was a lot simpler than having to deal with the, the, the baggage room, uh, you know, a backpack and a waste pack uh, to avoid the, the hassles of the, of, the, of the baggage room. And another experience that I've had, I'm wondering if Richard and Damien have similar experiences, that when you, you, I tell them ahead of time I'll need an escort, and then when there's an escort, you have a choice between somebody that's going to walk with you or bring a wheelchair. And my early trips, I used to feel, I don't need a wheelchair, I can walk with and so forth. But from experience, I found that when I had a wheelchair, it was much more efficient, especially in a big big uh, uh, airport where you got a really long corridor. If you're in that wheelchair, that escort really can move a lot better than walking with it, so I recommend for people to accept a, uh, a wheelchair. And then also in terms of it was mentioned about uh, when you're booking a room, to specify not an accessible room, please. And a lot of people in the general public don't understand that the term accessible room means, as was said in this call already, accessible for people in wheelchairs, and those are the worst kinds of room for me. Yeah. The, uh, for example, the thermostat's way down about three feet off the floor. Right. They don't have audible stuff. The, the, the bathtub doesn't have a high wall. It's very low. So a lot of reasons that I find uh, a room that's designed for wheelchair users the worst kind of room to get. And so, But all the hotel people know that it's called accessible, and they don't really understand. You know, it's accessible for a particular category of, of users. So I, I'm glad to have Damien and Richard uh, respond to those. I agree with you, yep. Ken, and, and thank you for the feedback. I would only add that um, I don't think Damien or I went into this, but when you are in a hotel room and you're trying to figure out if that's a shampoo, conditioner, or lotion, you know, uh, some, yes. putting a, a rubber band around one of them or, or asking the, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the person who's yeah, showing you your room, which is which. Yeah, exactly, um, and I always have them take away the decaf coffee so that I, I only have the regular. Um, you know, and we haven't talked a lot about, about products. I mean, of, of course, there's a variety, wide variety of accessible GPS products, which are invaluable, not just for getting from point A to point B, but, you know, just locating points of interest, knowing what restaurants are around, oh, yeah. things like that. Um, but also, like, portable um Optical character recognition, OCR scanning technologies. Um, um, Hims has the Blaze. Of course, there's KNFB Reader on the iPhone. But have, you know, being having a, a, a quick and easy way to identify certain things, like even in a hotel room, like knowing which side of the little sign says "Do Not Disturb" and which says "Made Service Requested" <laughs> is really yeah. handy to know. You know which you know it, which you're putting out or maybe identify yeah. the room service menu or something like that. So there's a lot of, you know, little 
I mean, I'm sure for a low vision person, having a handheld, uh, you know, video magnifier device would would be a, an essential. Um, you know, the little portable. I mean, technology is getting smarter and smaller, and you know, those things really really help us a lot. I mean, even the, the three things on I the use phone in, in, be in terms of applications are um, once I'm in my city of choice, uh, I use Google Maps if I want to find alternate transit routes versus just Uber if there's a bus nearby. Um, I use BlindSquare to see what's around me. And then once I find BlindSquare, I go to Yelp and go, okay, what's the restaurant rating? What are people saying about this review? And these apps are completely accessible. So I go to Yelp and go, hey, that's a great restaurant. I'm going to go try that that soul food place across the street. And then get walking directions with BlindSquare or Google Maps or or seeing iGPS. So it's, it's all there, and it's just brilliant. It's so much easier so uh, going to Minneapolis, having not been there for eight years, nine years with ACB, it's going to be an awesome experience when I go next week going, hey, I can I can go to Hell's Kitchen because I heard it's great. Wow, that's great. Well, you know, unfortunately we're out of time, but I, I want to thank both of you gentlemen for all of these really, really helpful tips. And I'd like to ask you, if you're willing to, would you be able to leave a contact uh, information for anybody who wants to ask you any specific questions, Damien? Yes, absolutely. Um, my email is Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N, at hims, H-I-M-S, dash, I-N-C, dot com. It's a little cumbersome, but Damien at hims, dash, inc, dot com. Great. And Richard? Mine is real simple. It's Richard Reda, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-R-U-E-D-A at sbcglobal.net. Great. Well, again, I want to thank both of you for all of this great information, and I want to thank all of you for listening in tonight so that all of you can go and have a wonderful summer vacation. So I hope that you tune in next week when we bring you more information about low vision.